Hello and welcome to this episode of Invest Africa Insights. Today we are going to be talking about Africa's recovery prospects and strategies to tackle the region's debt burden. We've been told many times over the course of the pandemic that we are all in this together, with calls for global solidarity as richer countries pump money into their economies. And yet, at the IMF spring meetings earlier this month, Kristalina Georgieva warned that economic fortunes are diverging dangerously. As richer countries are projected to see strong growth on the back of massive vaccination programmes and large-scale public investment, poorer countries are in danger of being left behind in a multi-speed recovery. To help us understand how Africa might fare in this uneven global landscape, I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Kishano Evans, Chief Economist at GEMCOR. Simon, welcome. Hi, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, so, Simon, if we if we jump straight into it, obviously, sub-Saharan Africa faced a heavy debt burden before the COVID crisis, and that's sort of part of what um, what was being discussed at the IMF meetings when they spoke of this multi-speed recovery. Um, so, with that in mind, what's your outlook for sub-Saharan Africa's debt now? How challenging is that limited fiscal space going to be? Uh, to the continent's recovery going forwards. Yes, thank you very much for the question, Elior. Um, I do feel quite strongly about this, and I think that the assumption by, uh, from the international community and international financial institutions from the very beginning, or the onset of uh, the COVID-19 crisis, was that Sub-Saharan Africa couldn't uh, deal with it. And in fact, uh, it has dealt with it much better with COVID-19, much better than uh, Europe has and, and also Northern America. Looking ahead, I think this will give uh, the region a lot of strength to be able to come out of this crisis. And indeed, you know, if we look at the uh, IMF's growth forecasts for the sub-region, then the IMF sees uh, actually sub-Saharan Africa outgrowing uh, LATAM uh, and emerging Europe, for example. I think that looking at the debt-specific uh, issue, um, going into the COVID-19 crisis, actually debt to GDP in sub-Saharan Africa was below uh, 60%. Whereas in Latin America, for example, it was about uh, 70%, 68%. And coming out of this crisis, the IMF sees that uh, LATAM is remaining about the 75% debt to GDP levels, whereas in sub-Saharan Africa, they do see by 2026 that it's falling uh, from about 56% to, to around 53%. So I think this just shows that sub-Saharan Africa itself is going to grow uh, as we move ahead faster uh, than regions like LATAM, for example and able to deal with the debt burden uh, as we move ahead. I think one final point I'd like to make is that uh, the whole issue of debt in sub-Saharan Africa has been very much politicized uh, by the international community. And uh, let's face it, uh, after 2008, 2009, the global financial crisis, uh, Europe and, and North America had uh, their own problems to deal with. So they left sub-Saharan Africa in a way uh, to get on with things. And we've seen a lot of reforms in countries like Ghana, Angola, Kenya, Ethiopia, even uh, over the last several years, which should uh, set in stone uh, a recovery phase as we move ahead in the next uh, few years. So you've spoken there perhaps about how some of the sort of um, issue around debt might be overblown, um, potentially, especially in sort of um, international uh, circles. So I suppose with, with that in mind, why do you think now again we're talking we're talking about debt so much in in those circles? Um, and and is what um, institutions like the IMF or like the G20 are doing around debt is it is it productive? Is it is it going to actually um, be of assistance, or does it actually just sort of move debt up the agenda 
um, and place it at the forefront of sort of the mind of investors and, and act as a counterproductive narrative for Africa. Now, those are all very important points, Eleanor. And I think if we look um, to the last five years or five or six years, Sub-Saharan Africa has been able to access global capital markets, just like Latin America, for example, or Eastern Europe, uh, or emerging markets, Asia. And I think that this, what we've seen, this politicization, if you like, of the issue, uh, seems to be aimed at even preventing uh, sub-Saharan African countries from accessing the private capital markets, the bond markets in the future, which for me, as an economist, is an integral part uh, of the development uh, process of any country uh, in emerging markets. So I think looking ahead, uh, what we need to see is more of a coordination between <clears throat> the public sector lenders and the private sector lenders. And the Paris Club uh, traditionally has had uh, a history of not having uh, private sector lenders included in the whole process, uh, any restructuring process that may take place. But I think looking ahead, given the fact that sub-Saharan African countries have now really placed themselves very much so in the in the context of, of borrowers in the uh, Eurobond market and also loan market, that the Paris Club and the G20 as a whole need to take that into account in any restructuring, renegotiation processes uh, as we move forward. And let's face it, uh, countries like Angola and Ecuador were able to negotiate their bilateral debt versus vis-a-vis China uh, without the support of any common framework or, or G20 uh, framework that had been uh, pushed onto them. So I think looking ahead, we need to see this uh, as a factual-based approach where private and the public sector lenders cooperate in finding a solution. And we, the, the, the fact that Ethiopia went down this route without any real framework in place, uh, leading to ratings downgrades, uncertainty in markets, the fact that Ethiopia in the IMF program was not allowed to actually uh, raise any non-concessional borrowing, including Eurobonds, of course, uh, which many market participants didn't realize. All of these things need to be resolved and dealt with uh, in a common manner. And, and you mentioned something there that, that is actually um, pretty critical, which is that there is actually a reluctance among some governments to, to take on debt relief programs. Um, and one of the, the reasons it's often given is the adverse effect it might have on, on Eurobonds and the sort of inability um, then to operate in, in the private capital market. So do you think, I suppose my question is, is that a fair fear um, on behalf of African governments that taking part in debt relief could actually uh, have an adverse impact on them? Absolutely. And, and I think essentially, again, as an economist, I look at this, the most important thing for sub-Saharan Africa is to get access as quickly as they can to vaccines. Without vaccines, you can't recover your economy. You can't move on to uh, the recovery phase that everybody expects for the region. The thing here is that G20 has been focusing way too much on uh, trying to push private uh, borrowing into this whole common framework. In, in fact, even in a way, politically forcing it uh, upon countries in a blanket approach. Now, fortunately, that, that was pushed aside eventually uh, by G20 countries in, in 2020. But going into 2021, one really does notice a, uh, a lot of pressure coming from international financial institutions and the international community as a whole 
to force countries in sub-Saharan Africa down the road of including uh, private sector uh, lending into the whole uh, process. But as you said, and as you rightly mentioned, this really raises the question um, about the issues about being downgraded, uncertainty. In the case of Ethiopia, for example, we've seen that uh, these, Ethiopia could easily have issued uh, eurobonds back in, in January of 2021. But since the announcement uh, of going down the common framework path, uh, there's been a lot of market uncertainty. Yields have picked up quite strongly. Uh, ratings agencies have downgraded Ethiopia. And it's a, it's a case that we're waiting several months now for the IMF to come up with its debt sustainability analysis uh, to be even able to start the whole process uh, that Ecuador, for example, did right from the beginning uh, by including the private sector lenders, public sector lenders, uh, and also the bilateral lenders. Uh, and this ultimately led to, to a solution within uh, a few months. So, so if we're thinking about solutions then, you know, with, with what we've just been talking about, about the role of the, the private sector and the balance, um, and perhaps taking some examples from Latin America, if there are any sort of uh, any lessons to be learned there, what, what should... What could the IMF be doing better, in, in, in your view, to, to balance those options out for, for countries? So let's face it, uh, the IMF uh, consists of member countries. So those member countries uh, provide the, the, the funds to the International Monetary Fund. And at the end of the day, it is the IMF board, uh, which consists of member countries, that decides on providing loans to individual countries. I think the IMF itself has been absolutely fundamentally supporting emerging market countries in the last several decades, as has the World Bank. There's no question about that. However, what we are starting to see is that it seems, it really feels as though um, because private bonds or private capital markets have been accessed by sub-Saharan African nations, that there's a sort of dislocation amongst international financial institutions and I think that looking ahead, given that we have the presence of loans and private bonds, that we need to see a coordinated approach that includes those uh, private lenders in the whole process, as I mentioned before, and that we see um, the IMF, the World Bank, the private bondholders, the loan providers all coming together with the um, debtor countries to find a solution to this. And it's obviously very difficult given that uh, the capital markets themselves are quite a dispersed group of, of holders. In other words, loan providers uh, and also bondholders which, who are dispersed around the whole world. Uh, and that is definitely one challenge uh, which we need to look into and where we need uh, one institution uh, to, to maybe represent those, those interests. But as we've seen in the case of Ecuador, for example, and indeed any restructuring that we've seen uh, in the last couple of decades, uh, the private sector bondholders always take part in the process. And that's why you have the collective action clause as in, in bond um, documentation and the private bondholder committees get into the whole process and start negotiating, obviously, in line with what the IMF is doing, in line with what the bilateral uh, public sector lenders are doing uh, with the country. And I think Ecuador, the case of Ecuador in 2020 is, is a clear blueprint for what such a process uh, should look like. So in, ter in terms of sort of developing um, access to capital markets in Africa and sort of financial institutions, 
Um, which are the economies that you sort of see most able to to do this and to, to step it up to do it a bit more in the next sort of um, in the next few years? I think essentially most sub-Saharan African nations that have uh, eurobonds outstanding would fall into that category, and even countries like Zambia should be included in that in that list, but. Zambia shouldn't be compared, for example, to Angola. Why? Zambia, for many years, refused to go to the International Monetary Fund for an IMF program, uh, refused to increase the transparency as to its borrowing from uh, countries like China. This created too much uncertainty, and it made it impossible uh, to to even devise some sort of debt sustainability analysis. Whereas Angola went down the path of an IMF loan program for a number of years now, it has reformed its exchange rate system, it has introduced a value-added tax um, and other taxes, it is reforming the economy locally uh, to fight corruption. All of these things are very important, and ultimately it's also including and empowering civil society, just like Ghana did uh, during its IMF program. And I think that, again, all of the countries really could participate in this whole process looking forward. Um, and there's no reason why any individual country should be excluded from uh, private capital markets uh, as we move ahead. Uh, the only thing is that we need to get certainty back. The worst thing for uh, private capital markets is uncertainty and a void in information. And that void has been really created um, by the uncertainty in this common framework process and the uncertainty as to how and when uh, private sector creditors will be included uh, in the whole negotiating process. And now you mentioned um, there some of the sort of more detailed differences between countries. Obviously, we've been, we've been talking in a sort of general sense. Um, so if, if we start looking in detail at how some countries are faring, uh, in this challenging landscape, which ones do you, which countries do you see as being well placed to return to growth, and which ones do you think might struggle a bit, a bit more? I think sub-Saharan Africa as a whole uh, should be seen as a sub-region or a region that is going to grow quicker than uh, many other regions. Uh, perhaps with the exception of Asia, given that that's very much driven by the likes of uh, China uh, and Korea. Within sub-Saharan Africa itself. Uh, and this also really very much depends on, on commodity price developments, which look pretty good. And let's face it, the world is exiting a, an abyss as far as uh, economic growth is concerned. And we're going to probably go or heading, we're probably heading into a massive growth outlook once these vaccines are, are rolled out across the world. One of the reasons to benefit the most will be sub-Saharan Africa, especially as commodity prices continue to rise. Um, and are actually this year being driven by this huge global pent-up demand that I was speaking about before. In the next three to six months, we should be seeing the United States, the European Union, um, vaccinate their populations to hopefully reach herd immunity. Uh, and this will drive global growth along with Asia. At a more idiosyncratic level, you have countries like Ethiopia, Kenya, and Ghana, where uh, there is a higher real GDP growth minus population growth rate, uh, which is important for 
providing for jobs in the future, job opportunities in future for the populations, and also underlying subsistence levels uh, for the electorate. Countries like Angola and Nigeria need to diversify in the future, and this is just the ideal time to do that, uh, especially as uh, oil prices, commodity prices in general remain high, uh, and it's difficult to see oil prices falling at the time uh, of pent-up demand picking up. Diversification is also important for, for the lower GDP per capita countries. And here I'm thinking about uh, countries like Liberia, the Gambia, Sierra Leone, which have arable land, high rainfall, potential for tourism sector build-outs, minerals in a number of cases. But this requires foreign investment. And FDI investors need the confidence. Uh, and that confidence, to me, should be uh, in place now given the way that the sub-Saharan African subcontinent has dealt with and fought COVID-19. And, and you've really sort of touched on the, the challenging dichotomy there, which is that obviously for a lot of uh, these countries or, you know, across across the global economy, um, that's a feeling that we're very much sort of still in the eye of the storm um, of, this, of this sort of crisis. And at the same time, um, need to be thinking about the longer term future. And, and that's how... Um, that's how you're going to sort of get get a return to growth is through that longer term investment and that sort of transition um, to a sustainable uh, and greener economy. Um, so, in that context, um, what what indicators do you advise sort of investors look at um, when they're trying to identify those countries in Africa that that are um, that are sort of most successfully towing that that sort of delicate line between tackling the the crisis now um, and also sort of thinking in an ambitious way about sort of about investment driven growth going forwards I think it's very important to look into qualitative factors and not just quantitative factors like data uh, what I do is uh, devise what I call a so-called reality index uh, which takes into account more qualitative aspects such as internet access, education ratios, female to male labor force participation rates, doing business indices, corruption perception indices. And I combine that all into this reality index and plot that against uh, the ratings of S&P and Moody's, for example. And we can see there looking ahead, and it's on a forward-looking basis, that many countries are actually underrated from a qualitative point of view. And you can see this on the ground going to countries like Ghana and Angola, for example, where the reform process over the last five or six years has led to an increasing empowerment of civil society, which has become critical of uh, government policy where it is needed and helped push that government policy in, in the right direction. And I think for me, those and these data are only available on an annual basis, but they do definitely provide us with an indication where a country is uh, heading. And investment to GDP ratio is also very important, as you mentioned. Uh, and as, as I said before, the private sector, it's crucial to include the private sector uh, lenders in that process. And I think one issue that we have is that there is not enough analysis of sub-Saharan Africa 
given, as you said before, there are so many countries in, in the sub-region. But as we see progress and success stories coming out of the region, so too will we, we see an increase in uh, analytical power for the region, in my opinion. Uh, and this will help uh, create a framework for private sector involvement uh, in the region. And how how closely um, in that framework would you advise um, investors or businesses to be looking at um, COVID-specific metrics and, and vaccination rates? Or do you think, if you're thinking about the next five to 10 years, um, you know, the, the differences of a few months here and there may not may not play out to be so important? That's that's a very good point. I think um, you know we we should look at be looking at the longer term, the multi year uh, framework, rather than just over a few months. And let's face it, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, some of the countries are heading into their winter months now, the Southern Hemisphere winter months now. So it's going to definitely be a challenge on the COVID front. But as we have seen in South Africa, for example, uh, the government, the authorities were able to get on top of COVID nineteen very quickly uh, back in January. Uh, much quicker than European countries or, or Northern America. And I think this should give us a lot of um, positive energy and, and how we, as to how we see the sub-region. And I think that looking ahead, for me, part of those qualitative aspects is how does the health system in a particular country deal with challenges such as pandemics uh, or epidemics? And I think that Sub-Saharan Africa has shown us in the last 12 months that it really is able to deal with these much better than anybody uh, would have thought out there. And it's sending to the, the message to the international community uh, to reduce the approach, the historical approach that the international community has had towards Sub-Saharan Africa, which in fact is historically burdened uh, to put it politely. And I think that looking ahead, what we need to see is an international community which becomes more involved in the region and sees the positive parts, the positive aspects in order to support this development process together with the private sector. Now, it's interesting you say that because, you know, you'd have to say if you're looking at emerging markets um, specifically um, from the sort of perspective of the pandemic and you're looking at Latin America and then you're looking at at um, Africa, um, there is there is a sort of quite a substantial difference there in terms of the sort of continental leadership um, on display. Um, Absolutely. So far, you know, yeah, you'd have to say that that um, on that metric, if you remove the sort of um, the US or, or Europe, which has the budgets to um, to tackle the vaccines, you know, head on. Um, Africa, through sort of continental action, um, has managed to to assert its position. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if we look at the whole process in the last twelve months, um, right at the beginning of the the pandemic crisis, the CDCs uh, got together in sub-Saharan Africa and, and looked on a countrywide, uh, multinational basis how they should approach this, how they should tackle this. This was way ahead of. You know, what we saw in, in Europe, for example, and let's face it, COVID-19 came into Africa out of Europe, and it was people traveling at the time, uh, winter holidays, all of these things. So I think there, um, really, 
the this is ignored a, a lot, and um, I think we shouldn't, you know, uh, be too um, patronizing. The international community should not be patronizing in their approach, and and listen to more more to to what sub-Saharan African countries themselves have to say uh, about what is going on and about what they can actually contribute to the world as we move ahead uh, in the next five to 10 years. So we've spoken quite a lot then about um, the fundamentals really that Africa has in its favour, but also some of the very real challenges that the continent faces. Um, so perhaps that would be a good moment for you just to tell us a little bit more about what GEMCOR's approach to investing in Africa is and, and what you're, the work you're doing across the continent. At GEMCOR, we continue to participate in Africa's recovery process. The main aim is to ensure that the, the recovery also becomes more sustainable. And I think this is really reflected in our substantial involvement in projects at a sovereign at a corporate and also grassroots level. And looking into the future, these projects should help secure thousands of job opportunities, local job opportunities, while at the same time furthering gender equality, which I think is very important uh, if we looked to the future of the continent. All of these things and, and what we've discussed should help open door, the door to, to more longer-term investors that Sub-Saharan Africa really needs, uh, a diversification, if you like, of, of foreign investors. And these foreign investors potentially have shied away uh, due to the lack of analytical capacity, um, given we're talking about such a wide spectrum uh, of countries. Um, now we've already touched on on some of the on quite a lot actually of the, of the sort of more um, hopeful aspects um, of the outlook um, for Africa, but I, I always like to sort of end to round off by sort of putting people on the spot and asking them um, for a sort of a country or a sector um, in the region that that you feel most excited about um, for the next sort of five to ten years. To me, um, quite honestly, Angola, I, I've, I have never seen a country in emerging markets, and I've been looking at emerging markets for the last 20, 30 years. And to me, there are very few countries in emerging markets that were able to, um, out of their own power, exit a crisis in the way that Angola has done. And I think the reforms that we've seen over the last two to three years in line with the IMF program have been extremely positive uh, and are underappreciated uh, by the international community and, and investors. And what we've seen in the last several months, actually, Angola outperforming all peers um, on the Eurobond side uh, this year. So that must tell us that uh, something is definitely going right. And as we move ahead, obviously, oil prices are, are really the main factor. Um, but had we not had these reforms in the last one to two years, uh, they wouldn't, Angola wouldn't have been able to, to exit the crisis in, in such a strong uh, and positive manner. So I think we should really focus on, on what the country has done. And I think it really stands as a 
um, an amazing example for not only emerging market countries, but also developed market countries as to what a particular country is able to do if it really uh, adapts and puts itself to, to the task. So um, I think that really does stand out for me uh, as the one example, uh, which is amazingly positive. Um, Simon, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights um, with me today. And I'm sure a lot of people will find those tips um, very helpful. Eleanor, thank you very much uh, for your time. Thank you.